This is the Goalkeeper Roundtable, hosted by Dr. Bill Steffen, with Jeff Shook, George Castellas, and Dave LaTourette. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Goalkeeper Roundtable. For today, we've asked John Pascarella to pull up a chair. John is the head coach of the Oklahoma City Energy FC of the USL Championship. Not only does John have great experience in the USL, he has years of experience in MLS, at Sporting KC, and at Minnesota United. Not only does John have experience here in the United States, one of my favorite parts of our discussion was talking about his evolution from his collegiate days here in the U.S. at Penn State University to playing professionally in Peru. I wish we could have spent the whole episode talking about it, but there's probably stuff we were better leaving out. Anyway, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with John as we really get into, along with goalkeeping, what he talks about relative to the process of coaching and his experiences and his roles that he plays at Oklahoma City. Not only that, he talks a little bit about how Alex Ferguson has influenced his style of coaching. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation with Dr. Bill, GK, no shooky today, Lotto, and the Furball. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, we're, we're really happy today to have John Pascarella, who is uh, well known to us and hopefully to some people listening as uh, the coach, head coach for the Energy FC, a uh, USL club in Oklahoma City. But we go too many years, too many stories back with John. Um, so Billy, John, we go way back. Oh, yeah. Way back. Yeah, way back. <laughs> yeah that would be a whole other you know, podcast that we'd have to you know, that would be on, it's not pay-per-view, but pay-per-listen. You have to have it on a pay-per-listen kind of basis. Yeah. That, all those stories. Um, cool. So, John, man, we're here to talk. How are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. It's good to see you again. Uh, always nice to, to chat with people you used to work with and you used to drive crazy and they used to drive you crazy. And it's, uh, it's fun to get back together. I'm a, little, I'm a little concerned about your audience today in terms of some of the stories they may hear and the things they might hear. Oh, well, hey, no, no, no. Both of our audiences, both of our audience members listen really well and they won't care. Okay. All two of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, John, what's the club doing right now? What is your club doing right now at, at this stage? Um, well, it's the quote unquote off season. Um, we are just getting ready to start preseason. So last week, the boys started to arrive uh, into the market. And as they arrive, we have a whole process that we have to take them through. So there's a COVID test that they do initially. Then they've got to go through the quarantine period. Then they've got to retest. And then we integrate them into the apartments with their teammates, their roommates, uh, and that type of thing. So we're doing that at this moment. We've got physicals next week. The coaches are still traveling uh, and going to combines. I am on my way to one from uh, Minneapolis. I'm currently in Minneapolis visiting family. So came in for the weekend, then going to a combine, then going, uh, then going back to OKC. But the offseason's been busy. It's about bringing players in right now. We have, I think, 21 of the 23 that we want to sign, already signed. So we're bringing in pretty much our team for preseason. And we're just eager and ready to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's really no offseason for you because that's when you go about scouting and recruiting and you know, developing your roster, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. There was, there was very little downtime this off season, but I like it that way. So we went straight from finishing the season, not making the playoffs to attending playoff matches and looking at targets and players that we wanted to bring in for this coming year, went to a couple of college games and there weren't many to go to in the fall, went to a number of combines around the country, including the college combine that was held this year in Kansas city instead of Florida. And, uh, and just signing players, you know, going through the negotiations, talking to guys about the deals and, and those types of things, which are very new to me. Last year was really the first time I had to deal with the contractual part of it. 
this year even more so because I've had more responsibility heaped on me in terms of a general manager or technical director role. So that piece now falls under my responsibility. But it's been something that's been interesting and I'm really eager and excited to do because you have every say now in the building of your team. So if the budget goes wrong, it's your fault. If the player's character goes wrong, it's your fault. If the player's not good enough for your system or the way you want to play, it's your fault. There's nowhere to blame it elsewhere, but you also have more continuity within your, your staff. You've got, I guess, ultimately the final say in being able to pick or not pick that player. Um, so those have been the different and interesting things over the last couple of months. Okay, so you have actually GM would also be in your title or in your duties, if not actually in your title. Correct. We had, when I originally started a GM, I was hired tech director and head coach. But that GM pretty much oversaw everything on the business. He did help me with some technical decisions, um, but it was mostly financial that he worked on. In this offseason, they've asked me if I would take over the entire football side, the financial side of it, the soccer side of it, all of it, which I've decided to do, not necessarily because I'm prepared to do that, or I'm partially prepared, more to learn that side of the business and to understand that side of the business. And then ultimately, for it to fall under my responsibility makes me the person that's accountable for it. And that's really how I'd rather have it. I'd rather be accountable for my team and make all the decisions having to do with that team if ultimately I'm gonna be the one held accountable for it. Yeah, at the end of the day, the results get tagged onto you as coach if it's due to things that a general manager has done. Yeah, obviously that's outside your, Correct. your responsibilities. That will be frustrating. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Good, good. So we, did, we didn't make a big deal of it within the company or I should say within the company we did, but outside the company, there wasn't a major announcement that was none of that stuff, but it's been an adjustment internally for all of us to kind of get used to and have a new way of working and try to find what works the best for all of us. Yeah, I, actually it's, 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 it's gotta be an interesting thing because again, I'm just going to, um, there was an article about uh, Corey Lorende. Am I saying it right? right? Cody Lorende. Yeah, and it, it's kind of an awkward thing. It's like, okay, well, yeah, we appreciate you being, and his, his article, he, he was just, he spoke so glowingly of your organization. He was really, you know, enjoyed his time there, but he was kind of an exception Having been there, what, five years was he there? Mm -hmm. yep. I mean, I don't imagine you sign many long-term contracts. You don't keep people there for five years because, again, that's just the nature of a team in your position. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of transition. Uh, Correct. Players that, on the way up and players on the way league. down. Yeah, that happens in our league a lot. There's, You'll have guys that you might keep for a couple of years, but within 24 months, 36 months maximum, the teams roll over almost entirely. You know, you might have, you might have a, a leadership group that you keep on board during those three years or the spine of your team that you really like. If you've got a good championship winning side, you might be able to keep them together for a, a couple of years. But generally speaking in this league, people are looking for the next opportunity, the next paycheck, the next place to be able to go so that they can, you know, try to succeed, make more money, get into MLS, all those things. Yeah. Is it much lateral transition, John, or is it mostly up and down? With our group? With, with players in, in your situation, in your team or in, in similar teams. Yeah, I mean, it, it was mostly in this situation, in this offseason, it was mostly like for like. And I won't throw names out there and I don't want to throw anybody yeah. off the bus, but what it had to do with was there was a split in the locker room that became quite obvious to me partially partway through the year. This was after we had the return to play from the COVID. We had an older group. Um, a returning group of players that COVID affected in a way that was almost so devastating that they didn't want to leave their houses. Most of them had families, children, and they were, because it was a time that was unknown, we weren't sure what the hell was going on. Yeah. I'm not sure panicked is the right word for it, but they were very, very conservative in what they did. A lot of uncertainty may be the best word. Uncertainty. Yes, uncertainty. During that time of uncertainty, our younger players, the guys that were all pretty much living together at the apartment complex, all continued to connect with each other because they felt safe around one another. Point where they as a group started going out to a local park and training. Well, this led to a bit of, of um, a split locker room and a little bit of divisiveness 
when we all came back together right after COVID because we had a group that really didn't necessarily want to be there and was, was afraid of the uncertainty involved in the situation. And the younger group who was like, who cares? We want to play. There's nothing that's going to stop us. Let's get going. And so that created a philosophical rift between the, between the team that we were never really able to overcome during the season. And so that had to be addressed this off season so that we brought in players that match the culture that we want, which is really hungry and driven. We don't want any settled, hey, I'm okay with this kind of personalities. We want guys that want to get after it. Yeah. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. Correct. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's a shame because the players that we had let go had great pedigree, had great experience. They'd won things in the past. They'd played in the USL and MLS, most of them. But it was just the, um, one of those things where they were almost too settled and too comfortable. And I needed to, to shake the group up a little bit and to get them to fight and to battle. And, and that's what we're looking for. And that's what, the, that's what the local market requires. That Oklahoma City market wants fighters, wants battlers. If you lose, you lose. But they don't want you losing cowering in the corner. They want you losing while you're trying to get after it. Competitors. You want competitors. Competitors, yeah. yeah. And I think that goes back to the the whole boomer bust mentality of that area. It's uh, in their systems, but listen, things might go bad, but you're going to fight your way through it. That's what you're going to do. Yeah, good. Lado, did you have something? Yeah, well, while John's on it, John, speak to that in terms of, let's just call it team chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you can, we, we've heard how it's affected your club but maybe speak to our, our coaches and even our younger, which we're going to be goalkeepers and how important that is. And we can talk culture, although we've had discussions about culture, but values, culture, and um, as a player, how can they affect it positively as a coach? How can we drive it positively? Yeah. Great question because chemistry is such a, you know, everybody talks about culture, but, but chemistry is such a key word because it, it really is all the elements of the group coming together. And how does that work? Does it implode? Does it fizz and bubble? Does it, does it create something new? What does, what does it do? Um, and for me, the chemistry really is the most important thing. So if you look at the USL, really, you could say this about any league in the world, but let's talk about the USL. The teams are pretty close financially. They have the same access to the talent pool as everybody else does. They play under the same conditions and the same rules as everybody else does. All those things are very similar. So if you have the same access to talent, if the talent pool is about the same, if you have the same resources and finances, and all the teams are about equal that way, what will set one team apart from the other? And that's the chemistry. That's the vision of the group. That's you know, whatever it is that carries that group forward, that environment is the major difference in the success or the failure of teams. And I believe that in any league in the world. Now you can, you look at Spain, that would be the case except for maybe your top two teams that can out or top three teams that can outspend everybody. You look at Italy, you look at Germany, you look at England, it's the same everywhere around. Three or four that can outbuy everybody else, the rest are all Teams four through 20 are all pretty much on a level playing field in terms of their finances and in terms of their access to the talent pool. The difference is how tightly woven together those elements are, how good that chemistry is, and are they all pulling in the same direction or are they all a disparate band of guys that are pulling in separate directions? So for me, that chemistry is the most important thing. Because as I said, my team last year was every bit as talented as the other teams on the field, and maybe even more so than some of the ones we lost to. But we were not a united group with one solitary vision of where to go and how to get there. Yeah, I think your difference between culture and chemistry is, is, is good because culture is kind of like the picture you want to present and the chemistry are the pieces in that puzzle. Do they fit? Yeah. Do they fit together? Yeah. Correct. Correct. And some of those pieces, that's, that's your job as a coach. Some of those pieces, it's your job yeah. to determine it's not a good fit. What's a better fit 
and now go and do those things or implement those processes like scouting, recruiting, all those things in your club to try to fix it, make it right. Yeah. Well, and if yeah. we can, if we can just point it since we, you know, in, in theory, we are the goalkeeper round table, but we're all coaches in general. We're not just goalkeepers, mm -hmm. but if we take that as a, and speak to our goalkeepers, we've said this before, John, but if like, for example, if you're a college coach like me and I'm, I'm recruiting or even if I have two goalkeepers and I'm recruiting and we have two goalkeepers of somewhat equal ability, but one goalkeeper either fits with the team chemistry or personality or quote culture, whatever better, or when they're here and we have two goalkeepers that are somewhat equal, if the team responds to that one player better from a chemistry standpoint, well, who are we going to play? That's what we're going to play. So, and I think that's just a general message to, to our goalkeepers out there, how, how important your personality and your adaptability is. Yeah. You, you have to as a goalkeeper, because you're the leader. Georgie, hang on one second, bud. It's all good, man. It's all good. <laughs> you have to. Your role as a goalkeeper is very much like a coach's mm -hmm. in certain aspects, because you are back there directing traffic. Well, the players will be more turned tuned into what yeah. you have to say if the chemistry is right between you and those players. But if you and your two center backs or you and your right back don't get along, you don't have a relationship, you don't have a dialogue, there's no communication there, there's no relationship there, yeah. and forget about it. Your group intentions and how you're gonna, how you're gonna defend and how you're gonna succeed, never gonna happen. So it, it, uh, in my opinion, having been a goalkeeper, having coached goalkeepers and now coaching teams, I feel it's almost the responsibility of the goalkeeper as the leader back there yeah. to be the one that's trying to create that culture, that environment, that chemistry in a way that's successful for the team. I love it. I love it. George, what do you got, man? No, well, I mean, uh, we're talking about team chemistry. So <laughs> I, I automatically started to think about maybe the methodology and approach, John. And I mean, I know you've only been there, you know, really one year and now you're, you're getting a, a broader grasp of, of OKC. Uh, obviously the Patriots got the Patriot way and Alabama's got a certain way of doing things. Have you kind of been able to put your, I would say your methodology and approach and, and if so, can you expound on it? The Pasquarella yeah. method. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a method in, in, in how we work. Um, we've stolen bits and pieces. So I don't, I don't use just physiological periodization or physical periodization. I don't use just tactical periodization. Um, I don't use just game-based practices. I use all of these different pieces in the methodology. But the biggest piece of the methodology for me, and this is the thing I said to the players last year, and I'll say to them in the first preseason meeting this year, nothing really matters in terms of what I say or how we want to play unless I can get the players to be comfortable and to trust in me. So it really is kind of a hierarchy of their needs. There's, there's this place where you have to first make them comfortable. Once you've made them comfortable, then they will open their ears and their hearts and they will allow you to make them more competent. But they're not gonna allow you to do that. They're not gonna listen to what you have to say until they know you care. They don't give a shit what you know. They wanna know that you care. Once they figure that out, they're more comfortable with you then you can go about setting the table for becoming more competent. And with those two things comes this upper level of confidence. confidence. So, so the methodology really is that way and it's, it's incremental, but it has to do with all different teaching and really um, uh, best practices type of teaching methodology. You know, we go through all of those things and we try to be very intentional about it from the way that the players come into the training ground and what they first see, our schedules for the days, our discussions before training to kind of set the table and to open their minds and to prime their brains for what we're about to do on the field, the follow-up stuff after that, and then the, 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 um, the recovery afterwards at our training ground and the lunch that we have at our training ground, all of that is part of the methodology of trying to create not just a good team, but a good culture, a good dynamic, a good chemistry around the group so they're comfortable. I want players wanting to hang out at the training ground. Mm -hmm. I want the players to be there spending time because in doing those things, 
they grow closer to one another. So in doing that, we have to have a way of working and a working environment that's comfortable for them. So it's, it's fairly regimented in terms of they understand what's happening as soon as they get in there, they get their schedule, they know what time the first meeting is, they know what time the training starts, they know what time the follow-up meetings are, and then all of the teaching pedagogy that we use while they're there, all those things are implemented during that time and, and discussed amongst the coaching staff. It's one thing we're pretty anal about. So what does the typical day look like then? So every year is different. This year I'm going to change the training time, but let's just say a training time was at 10 o'clock. Coaches would generally be in around 8, 8.30, setting up the fields, doing whatever we needed to do. Training session would have already been determined. So we would have figured it out and you'll hear it here on the schedule, but we would have figured it out the day before. So we turn up early. The players turn up an hour beforehand. So usually nine for 10. They'll do their prehab, whatever they need to do. We will either go straight on the pitch and the players will know from this board that we have out whether they're going to meet in the locker room before training at 10 or whether they're going to go straight out onto the field and meet there. We'll end up going through the session. And then again, on their schedule, on their board, they know afterwards, is there a lift? Is there extra training for certain guys? Is it straight to the showers and then the team meal? Um, that type of thing. And then everybody has their own individual pieces that we do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes have a second yeah. session for some guys, some that aren't playing or some that are rehabbing or need more work. We don't have as big a staff um, as MLS teams do. So if we have a player that's in rehab, let's say we've got a guy with an ACL injury, he's not coming in and rehabbing for the most part when the team is there. He's coming afterwards because we've got one full-time trainer. So that full-time trainer has got to be with us and devoted to us. And then he deals with, with those injuries afterwards. So all those things contribute to how you work and why you do the things you do. Um, but that is, that's kind of how we do it. Players are yeah. in it before they know what the schedule is. We kind of go through it. We're fairly anal about the teaching pedagogy that we use. We use a lot of video to, to recap things or to preview things and plant seeds in their head as to what we're looking for that day. And then we try to make it as comfortable as possible. Just the social dynamic piece of it. Mm-hmm. We want those, those pieces to be in place so the players aren't in a rush, take the shower, grab their stuff and leave. Yeah. Rather have them hang out and get an extra workout in or hang out and take the soccer tech table out and play soccer tennis or hang out in the locker room and have lunch together, two or three of them um, in one area instead of grabbing their lunch to go. So those are some of the things we're trying to create in the environment in which we're trying to create them. Yeah, just on that note, it, I love the discussion with this, you know, that you brought forward here, which is great because it's a little non-typical of our some of the things we've approached here on this on the podcast. But just an experience and, and everything that you said, it really hits home. For here's an example. Um, I was going to say last year, but it's not last year anymore. It's two seasons, two seasons ago with a dead season, like in terms of the fall, we did play in the fall, but the fall before that was the first year as a school where we were well supported in terms of travel. When I say travel vans or buses, we used to be that we had a handful of buses a year, two or three and everything else we, we had to deal with vans, which is fine at a certain level until you're driving home three hours, it's dark guys are separated into different vans and to clicks and, you know, potentially clicks. But in 2019, every road trip, we had a bus and just the simple fact of putting every single player on the same vehicle to every road match made a really big difference. And there's probably coaches out there that can say, yeah, they take six cars or they take three vans or they do whatever, but just that aspect of putting everybody on the same vehicle, uh, well, selfishly from a coaching perspective, we could pull players forward, sit down, have individual meetings with them and not have to schedule them differently. And we don't have to drive, but just to pull the team together to experience that of just being together was, was, pretty powerful i thought anyway Mm -hmm. yeah i would uh i mean listen when it comes to those kind of things for the most part the more time the boys can spend around each other provided it's not idle time provided they're not bored while it's going on but if they can spend time together traveling 
versus being separated. They can spend time together in the locker room eating versus being separated. Those, those things, that time, those bonds, those discussions, they add up over the course of the season, yeah. add over the course of the lifespan of a team. Because some of those teams last more than a year or two. Sometimes you can keep a core group together for a few years. So that piece of it, every moment of it together, I think is, is vital. And the more of those you can have, provided it's not idle time, I think is important. Agreed. One of the things, John, I wanted to ask you about is, um, and it goes back kind of to um, scouting, recruiting, but bringing people into your group is, uh, again, at your level, you've got a starting goalkeeper and they're going to play. And the backup keeper will not play unless there's an injury, you know, something else comes up, things like that. How difficult is it to recruit a second or recruit? I'm using the term recruit use whatever team you like, but to bring in a, a, a second goalkeeper, someone who you know is not going to play, and they're going to have to know you're not going to play, but you still want them to be A, competitive, mm -hmm. and B, healthy for the group. Yeah, I hope, I'm, I hope that's clear what I'm trying to, to Yeah, it, it's, it's tough, not only in that position, but particularly in that position, because if it's another position and they're doing fairly well. If you bring in a couple of decent central midfielders and they're all doing really well, you'll find another place to play that guy. You might play him out on the right. You might play him as a right back. But the goalkeeper, he's a goalkeeper. And you want to have your goalkeepers being pushed. So you don't want to have one really good one. And another guy that you wouldn't play, you'd want another guy to be someone you would play. So it's difficult to, to bring two, two people into that position knowing that one's not going to play. But I think that is key in finding the right two guys. Mm -hmm. If you find two that are willing to say, I'll come in and I'll take that chance and I'll battle for that spot and I'll prove that I can win it, then I think that's the competition that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Ones that want to shy away from that are the ones that I generally are, are a little bit more leery of. Um, I understand why they're concerned because they're probably not going to play a lot that season. But then they're not backing themselves either. They're not. They're certainly not betting on themselves by taking that that road out and saying, "Nah, I'd rather pass and not not be one of the two there." Yeah, I think that that confidence that you're suggesting, the willingness to be able to take that risk, yeah. is admirable. Admirable, yeah. George. You have a question? I mean, I just know from from my experience when I was with Hartford. I mean, um, I mean, obviously JP, you're well aware of Jimmy. Jimmy was very transparent and. We were fortunate enough to, to solidify a, a number two, but he knew coming in. And I think that that open line of dialogue and having that person understand that role was significant and why we were able to kind of get through that season and understand that, or he understand what his role was. He was fortunate enough to get some time and it was a positive experience, but uh, at the same time, when the transition was made back where he became the second one, um, I think you know when you're playing and all of a sudden you're, you're removed, that's, that becomes kind of an emotional thing. But um, again, to his credit, he was professional about that. JP, man, I mean, you've seen um, the league as a head coach um, from the USL. You've seen it with, with Des Moines. You've been at the MLS level. And I guess my question would be is what type of trends or positives, negatives that you've seen in, in goalkeeping that's become kind of out there and relevant? I mean, what are you recognizing now as um, in your role? The, the thing I've noticed the most, the thing that changed the most during my 10 years as a goalkeeper coach and the things that I've noticed the most now is that we are still staying with very static exercises and isolated type of training and not involved with the rest of the group. Or if you can't be involved with the rest of the group, can you have enough goalkeepers around where you can create functional situations where it's not just save after save, but decision after decision. Mm. That's where I've noticed the biggest change. That's where I've noticed the biggest negative negativity, if anything. When you see someone train goalkeepers well and train them, in my opinion, the way that's right, you see them doing a lot of functional activities that include decisions and other players in the mix. And it's not usually one action. It's an action and a follow-up action, or maybe two or three actions. So for exam example, there might be a three-goal situation where the ball doesn't get played 
in a space where you can take the initial ball across, but you've got to move across the goal. You've got to deal with that second shot. And then maybe whether that shot scores or not, goes in or not, you deal with another follow-up action across, another shot, whatever. But oftentimes in our training, maybe you'll make the first part of that activity very um, realistic. So you'll have a guy moving at speed that beats a defender that pulls the ball back. You have enough bodies in the box that that part's realistic and a guy gets shot on goal. But then the follow-up shot or the follow-up action, because you don't have enough bodies involved, you don't have anybody screening the shot or you don't have people boxing you out and dealing with you when you're dealing with that second cross or you don't have enough people that are harassing you as you're sprinting to the top of the box to distribute the ball. The one thing I got a lot of grief for at Kansas City, and, and Peter still rides me about it when I talk to him now, is sometimes I'd have seven, eight goalkeepers in training, and only three or four were ours. But I would bring in another four local goalkeepers to create those types of situations. Yes, they would get a few reps, but they were there primarily to be the field players, to be the obstacles, to be the attackers in those functional situations that we created for the goalkeepers. Yeah, I think the point you made about decision-making, John, I've just spent, the, again, I'm not nearly as involved as I used to be, but the time I do spend with goalkeepers now, especially collegiately, um, it's so much on what, why'd you do that? Do you think you could have done this? Why did you do that? It's so much of those kind of questions about decision-making. Because again, yeah. I think, it goes back even farther in terms of reading the game and goalkeepers now are forced to read the game so much more than previously. And that's a good thing, I think, because again, I always thought that was something that I was uh, capable at was, was understanding, okay, look, that player's there. It's going to come this way. I, I kind of know what's going to happen, that kind of thing. And yeah. I think that helped, that helped me uh, tremendously. And it helped because I had played in the field so much prior. Yeah. Here's the thing that I always, I always see with head coaches more than I see with goalkeeper coaches. And it's, you want your goalkeeper, for example, to be able to read the game, to make good decisions with his feet and to be at least comfortable enough to play out of the back. He doesn't have to be Ederson or Allison or Neuer and ping every. I don't know if you want to say Allison. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, at this like, moment. <laughs> hey, listen, you, can, you can always use Neuer though. We're talking about career, <laughs> talking about a career and not a couple weeks. He may have had a bad couple. Of weeks. The guy can just yeah, yeah. yeah he can. Now I forget what the hell I was going anyway, to say. Anyway, yeah, anyway, yeah. Anyway, doesn't have to be um, Allison or Neuer or whoever out of the back, but yeah, but but we want our players to be able to play. Yet, what head coach? And I've had this argument as a goalkeeper coach with our head coaches constantly. I had it with Inchi and I had it with Peter. You want them to be good. You want them to be able to read the play. You want them to be able to play quickly out of the back and know who to hit with a pass. But you're playing 4v4 plus 3 in a rondo, and your end guys are never goalkeepers. You're mm -hmm. playing possession games. You never use the goalkeeper as a bumper. How the fuck exactly. do you expect them to learn the game, to see the game, to understand the game? <laughs> if you're not putting them as one, <laughs> if you're not putting them into those situations. So you're asking the goalkeeper coach to put two mannequins up, to pass the ball between the mannequin, to have the take a touch wide of the mannequin and then hit it to the guy that's standing in the channel <laughs> with zero pressure. And now you want him to go into a game. He gets the back pass from here. Which one do you think it looks more like, the mannequin drill or the 4v4 plus three? Yeah. 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 We've had that oh. discussion, John, and we talked about, you know, we – we have coaches here that listen, well, we hope we do, that are goalkeeper coaches, but we also, the, the, the group that we're trying to speak to at some levels is the club coach mm -hmm. who is coaching 15 boys or girls mm -hmm. and, at a time, and he has a goalkeeper or two or six, however many kids he has, and that's all. It's just, it's just him or her coaching. There's no goalkeeper coach in that moment. Yes, maybe their club has a coach, but identifying ways to not just say, hey, we're going to play, okay, groups of six, we're going to play 4v2 in the grid, yada, 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 and just put your goalkeepers in. Mm -hmm. But can you take that exercise, craft it one level richer, and put your goalkeepers, like you said, in a position that it's slightly more functional for them to make decisions? And mm -hmm. I've done that a lot, and I, but it's, somewhat easy for me coming from a goalkeeping perspective from a mm -hmm. good teaching uh, pedagogy perspective 
but for some people it's not. Um, but if they just step back, think a little bit like, okay, I've, I've got this exercise. How can that make be more specific for my goalkeeper or more functional? And that's just coaches being creative, I presume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it also takes a bit of cooperation between the coach. Between the yeah. Yeah. And, and really, I think it's in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's lazy coaching. Yeah. They'd rather say, just send him over there Tuesdays and Thursday nights and let him get his goalkeeper training in versus figuring out a way to incorporate him into your team training. Because I truly believe they'll probably get more out of being incorporated into the team training constantly than they would be doing the individual training. The individual training at the beginning, I think, is great because it lays mm -hmm. the foundations. But if you had a choice between just training a goalkeeper with goalkeeper training or training him with your team, and you can only do one or the other, I would take training him with the team all the time. Because you're going to be better off in terms of reading the game, understanding the game. He'll still become a good shot stopper. He'll figure it out. But the other piece of the game will get noodled through in his head. Yeah, they, they may be a little bit rough around the edges, but they at the end of the day, they'll, they will allow fewer goals. Correct. Yeah. Just to kind of go, oh, just going back to one of the other points that JP made, and if you are, you know, working with goalkeepers, I thought what was really essential, and I always, I always found it valuable in my training, was making the economical where there are multiple actions, and mm -hmm. it's, that it's not just becoming stagnant. It's not just one action. It's multiple actions, and obviously, when you can incorporate those decisions. You know, I always say to, to a, a number of goalkeepers that, hey, 50% of your job is making a save. The other 50 is what you do with the ball afterwards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's really valuable that they're constantly training multiple actions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Can't argue that. Did you have something as well? Yeah, and it goes back to your previous point. And I, and I love, he, he, John had referenced bringing more goalkeepers into his, his environment to be able to be more functional. And... I prefer, well, I'm still doing some, you know, coaching within a club and I, and we, and it's within small group settings, to be honest with you, I've turned away working with one goalkeeper at a time because not because I don't want to make a little extra money, not because I don't want to work with the kid um, because typically are they going to get something from it? Sure. Technically, are they going to get something, but I would rather say, Hey, Talk to the other, the other goalkeeper on your team, your high school team, your whatever. Pull two together. Let's split the cost. Let's pull three guys in as opposed to training one. A, better environment with the three guys or girls feeding off each other. Mm -hmm. And I love actually, to be honest with you, blending some males and females together because sometimes the guys get owned a little bit. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, I've been in that environment. But um, to be honest, I prefer <coughs> that, that group environment. It allows us... It just allows us to do more. It's more functional. And I have kids who will come into those group environments and they, they come from working with an individual coach and not that the, the coach in themselves is doing anything incorrectly. I don't see a lot of evolution in those kids when they come, come and go, they get more from the group environment. Um, so it's, I would just like some of our goalkeeping coaches out there to start rethinking what they do uh, in, in terms of training our, our younger goalkeepers, or not even our younger goalkeepers, our goalkeepers, period. Well, I think, John there's, made there's point earlier. Sorry, go ahead. I, no, I think, I think you made the point earlier about coaches. You know, again, it can be lazy. I can think, okay, here's what I'm going to do with my team. And when coaches are talking about practice and they say, here's what I'm going to train with my team, they, a lot of them won't mean the goalkeeper. Correct. They'll just say, okay, this is my team. And they don't think about training the goalkeeper. That's the goalkeeper coach's job. I don't have to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's part of your team. Yeah. And so I think they need to understand to do with that. Um, having said that, John, given your situation, how much of the goalkeeper training do you do? <laughs> that's a goose <laughs> Absolutely egg. zero. Um, and, and, when I, and I mean that in the sense of I coach the goalkeepers just as I coach the team. As team players, yes, but not team goalkeepers specific activities. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of the technical work, I don't do a lot. I don't do any of it, really. I'll sit back and watch it. I'll watch my goalkeeper coach, Alexis Vizarellis, work with them. I may make a comment or two, but it's not my session. Mm -hmm. However, what I do do is, because of my background in goalkeeping, I do coordinate with him in terms of periodization and making the session make sense for him 
as it's going to tie into us and the bigger picture in the team. So those are the discussions we have, but he's the one that does the training. Now, to be fair, and maybe this makes me sound lazy, but in the way I work at Oklahoma City, I do this much coaching with the goalkeepers and I do that much coaching with my team because I'll let Lee coach the team. I will stand back and I will make comments, but my comments are more broad-based and they're more team intentions-based. They're more big picture-based, whereas Lee is doing the, the actual coaching of the activity and making sure that the individuals understand what the little principles of the drill are or what the idea is in this little correction, individual correction in terms of his tackling or his passing or whatever. I usually don't get involved in that. It's more bigger picture. You're more of the manager. You're more of the manager. Correct. It's more about managing the interactions. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that, leading the group in terms of the way they play, how they play, and all the things that go into it. But it's not the actual X's and O's. In the locker room, it's a different story. Because I will do 80% of the talking in the locker room. And Lee and Alexi will probably do 20%. Lex will talk a little bit about strengths and weaknesses of their goalkeeper, also some threats against our goalkeeper. Lee will talk about some things having to do both with their, their um, the four phases and the phases of play and also some of their individuals. But in general, when we talk about team tactics, team intentions and those types of things, it's me that's doing the talking, but on the field, it's more of the coaches. Yeah, understood. Lotto. It, was it not, um, and there's three small pieces to this that it made me think when you said that, but was it not Alex Ferguson that at some point in his career learned that where someone, either he learned it or somebody said to him. And then once he actually stepped back, let his highly qualified assistants do the actual sessions. And I don't know if it was an every day, but when he said he stepped back, he was able to look at the group from a broader perspective, like a global perspective. And I, it makes me think of Bear Bryant standing on a tower at, at University of Alabama watching football practice, but, and, and, he, and he made the comment about how much more he could see and then adapt, adjust, or comment because he wasn't standing in the middle of it, looking at a, a, a smaller perspective, but a global perspective. So is that what you're trying to do, John? Yes, and that's where I stole it from. <laughs> so I, I was lucky enough to meet Alex Ferguson and spend a week with him in Kansas City a number of years ago when they did preseason. And he talks about it in his book, his book Leading. He talks yep. about the power of observation. But this is the way, and that story that you just relayed to everyone, he relayed to me when I asked him the question. Because after three days of watching him in training, he said almost nothing in those three days of training. So I pulled him aside after training and I said, I've noticed this activity, this activity. I noticed you pulled gigs aside to say something to him. I noticed you pulled skulls aside to say something to him, but that was it. You didn't really, there wasn't much interaction. Why is that? And he said that Archie Knox had convinced him years ago to step away from the training so that one, Archie wouldn't be bored to death, but two, that, that Ferguson could actually sit there and look at what he needed to look at. Instead of being involved in the micro part of it and not seeing everything, stand back and look at the macro part of it. And so I've taken that on board because now what I will look at is not is the drill functioning right or how can I make this better? Or does it need to be bigger? Do we need to add another player here? It's do they understand what we're trying to get out of this and how it relates to our game model? Do they understand the communication between the right back, the right midfielder, and the center back who has the ball and what their movements should be and how that relates to either penetrating between the lines or penetrating beyond the defense? Those are the things that I'm looking at now and not the minutia. And it came from having stolen it from him, having read about it in one of his previous books, then watching him and actually asking him and saying, I read the story about Archie Knox. I have an idea of why you do this, but you haven't said three words in three days. What are you doing? And, and he said to me, I'm honestly looking at whether I'm starting skulls or gigs in this one position against you guys, because the other 10 players are already decided. So for three days, that's all I've looked at. And it, it's interesting because yeah. I actually, I, I'm fortunate enough 
in the club that I work at a, a day or two a week, I typically have a young, uh, another goalkeeper with me. He's a college goalkeeper. Uh, he's my assistant. He works, he works with all of our, our kids, but if the, the group size is correct, I can set up, set up the exercises from, you know, where we're going to go one to net to one to the next or the progression. And I'll get him involved. So he's doing a little bit more of the coaching or maybe he's striking some balls that I don't you know, want to strike. Cause we've had the conversation about stepping, stepping back. And if we're striking balls at goalkeepers, we're missing part of the, the, the equation of the goalkeepers movement to, to what they're going to do. And it's really allowed me to, and I really do step back. Like instead of standing in the middle of it or in the middle of the goal, or even by a goalpost, I'll step back even farther and look at the, the, the whole movements and, and where the ball is coming from and the timing of it, where I can even just make a micro adjustment to the exercise in terms of distance or speed or tempo. Uh, but then also be able to pull one goalkeeper out and make one small point or ask him a question as we like to do. And I've, I've found that, and I've never done that before, but I adopted it, adapted it from Ferguson to doing it with our team to doing it now with the goalkeepers on a micro level. And mm-hmm. I've found it successful. Now, granted, we're not all going to be in the environment to be able to do that mm-hmm. as goalkeeper coaches, because sometimes it's just you and, and two goalkeepers. Um, but I think if we find ourselves in those environments, maybe we can do it. Any, any thoughts on that? And how do you see that? Well, it's interesting because you just reminded me of, of two conflicts that I had at the two MLS clubs that I was with, both Kansas City and, and, in, um, and in Minnesota, where the head coach or even people above them, GMs, presidents of the clubs, would ask me why I wasn't serving in training, <laughs> why I wasn't hitting balls mm-hmm. in training. Because the reality is exactly what you said. If mm-hmm. striking that ball I'm not looking at the goalkeeper because the only way I'm striking that ball is if I look at that ball. So when I finally pick my head up to look at the goalkeeper, I've missed everything that happens in the buildup to the shot. So I don't know where he came from. I don't know what his starting position was. I don't know if he was exactly balanced at the right time. I don't know any of those things because I never looked. I'm looking at the ball. But if I have someone else hitting the ball, well, then I can see everything from the very beginning of the action till the very end of the action. So for me, that's, that's a key piece of it. You've, you've got to, and, and all I've done is I've, I've stolen that idea as you have, and now taken it to the team. But the same principle applies in goalkeeping. There's no reason why you have to serve a ball. Your eyes are the most important thing you have as a coach. So they should be focused on the action, not on the ball. Another, another reason where the small group training environments. Yeah are beneficial for you as a coach, for the goalkeeper, but also for the goalkeepers that they, you have to force them to start serving balls because now all of a sudden, maybe they get a hundred, 200, 300 touches that they wouldn't have gotten if you were doing all the striking. Yep. And at the level I was at the last couple of years, like in Minnesota, for example, I couldn't hit at 52, 53 years old. I couldn't hit the ball hard enough anymore for Vito Minoni to get tested in the way he needed to be tested. Dane St. Clair could hit that ball with no problem. Better off using what I'm good at, which is my eyes and my mind, and he's better off using what he's good at and (laughs) training and working environment there. I like it. I like it. I think uh, uh, the other thing I was going to trace, John, uh, and it goes back to the the, kind of like the overseeing the big picture kind of idea is that um, you have to trust and have assistant coaches that you feel are capable and you're comfortable working with and allowing them to have you know, such a degree of uh, intimacy is probably not the right word, but just interaction with your players while you are seeming a little bit more kind of like, as you were saying, aloof and a little bit more withdrawn, but at the same time, they have to understand that and understand that you guys are a team. The coaching staff is a team as well. So again, I think that must speak to the the quality of the assistance you have. Yes. I, I, again, I don't only trust them in terms of their character. I trust their quality. So if there's things I see, and I've mentioned this to coaches before in the past, if there's something I see in training, I won't say it right there and then, but if I didn't necessarily like what I heard or what I saw, or I was wondering why they might've been doing something, I'll turn around and ask them in private after the training session and find out, you know, that dialogue is, is what's key, but 
you've got to have people you trust and around you like that that can help you because you can't, there's no way you can do it all. There's no way you can do it all. That's, I spent the first six months last year in the job being completely overwhelmed because I hadn't yet learned the skill of delegation. I was trying to do everything. I was running this piece of this, that piece of this session, doing this, doing that, picking up this, picking up that. After a while, you realize stepping away from it allows you to contribute the most because you can see all of the little things that are falling through the cracks and just trust the people around you. They'll get the job done. Very little will fall through the cracks, but your job is just to find that. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Jeff Tipping said yeah, some coaches are rearranging furniture while the house is on fire. And it's, it's <laughs> yeah. the idea. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Oh, yeah. I got to remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, with with that, um, again, where do you see uh, your club was one of the first? I'm, I'm as we typically do. I'm jumping around here, but your club was one of the first clubs I, I remember watching on television having crowds back. Um, yes. What's this summer going to look like for you guys? We. Um, Last year, we never had a reduction in capacity at our stadium. They, they did in restaurants a little bit in and around Oklahoma City, but Oklahoma City, in my short time there, seems to be a very um, people privacy, people rights type of city or state. Don't mess with me. Leave me alone. I can make good judgments on my own, and they go from there. So there was no reduction in capacity at the stadium. However, people stayed away because of the uncertainty of going on. So we probably had, I don't know what the average was, but I would guess we had a thousand people at games, which compared to some people like New Mexico was astronomical because New Mexico wasn't even allowed to play at home last year. They had to play all their games away. Um, And it was just, it was a good situation for us. The lucky thing was, and this is kind of unrelated to your question, but this year, into the contracts in the USL was um, instituted this thing called force majeure, which basically means if the league implodes because of COVID or some natural disaster, then here is the terms of the contract. You get a 60 day severance or whatever it is and you're done. But the second part of that force majeure was having to do with reduced capacity. So if capacity, and this went was different from team to team, So for example, if you had, you were allowed in your state 80% capacity, maybe you were getting 90% of your salary. If you were allowed 50% capacity, maybe you were getting 80% of your salary. If you were allowed 25% of your capacity, maybe you were only getting 50% of your salary. That benefited us this off season because Oklahoma City never closed down last year. Never had a state mandate reduction in, in our stadium capacity. In fact, when Oklahoma University played Oklahoma State University in the college football game at the end of the season, 48,000 people in the crowd. So it was very easy to convince players to sign and saying, listen, don't worry about the force majeure in terms of reduced capacity. Your salary is going to stay the same because as bad as things were last year, we never reduced capacity. We never closed down. There was never a, a local or state law that had us do any of those restrictions. Now, maybe yeah. the national one, you know, maybe Biden comes in and he says, we're shutting everything down for 60 days. Who knows? Um, but we got lucky that way. It was, a, it was a, a win for us in the off season and allowed us to go get players at a time when other teams couldn't get guys to commit because of their, their force majeure rules. Hmm. It was interesting because I went to, um, I saw a game in South Carolina, the Triumph play, and they had the same, a similar thing, but they had a mask mandate. And they actually had a guy running down the front of the bleachers. And if yep. you didn't have your eight points, say, put your mask on, put your mask on. Yeah. And he was good about it because, yeah. you know, somebody said, I don't want to just look, if you don't put your mask on, we can't be here. There's no more crowds and we yeah. can't be on TV. You can't do this, that, and the other thing. So they were very good with that. So, um, yeah, it's a difficult situation um, yeah. for anybody, for anybody yeah. to, to try and estimate what's going to go on. Where do your yeah. players rank in terms of, um, in North Carolina, I'm an educator, so I'm a, what's called class three. I'm waiting to get my uh, vaccine. Where are the majority of your players got to be pretty far down the list, I'm going to guess. I would imagine they are pretty far down the list. I think it depends because we have some guys that have like the trait for sickle cell anemia. I'm diabetic. We have guys that are in there that would be considered 
higher risk, yeah. but they're still pretty much the healthiest part of the population. So we're all gonna be way down near the bottom of the list. Yeah. The interesting thing has been having the discussions with the league, with the team and with the union, because the team wants to know, are we all being vaccinated? They all wanna know, cause some want it and others don't. Others mm -hmm. don't wanna get near it. The union wants to know, are we gonna do this as a league mandated thing or are we gonna do this where every individual or every individual team is on their own? And the teams wanna know as well, and I'm not sure they want to take on or incur the cost or the liability with it because they say it's an individual choice. Yeah. So it's fun to go through that process. But as of now, in a meeting that we had just this past week, each player is on their own individually, but we have them consulting with and working with our team physician to determine what's the right choice for them and when. Mm. So no mm -hmm. easy answer there, Billy. Yeah, no, but again, we still are learning. We still are learning. Yeah. I mean, I read a lot of the research just because I, I read a lot. But yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's crazy uh, in terms of what, you know, we need to do with people. Um, yeah. Lara, Lara, what yeah. do you have? I, I've, I've always been intrigued by John's international playing experience. It, you know, when we work camps together, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had some discussions. and um, But I, I never really knew... Johnny, how you how you ended up in Peru? Is that right? Was it Peru? Yeah, yeah. Um, so how, I mean, how talk to our listeners about that process? How you ended up in Peru as a goalkeeper? How you were treated? And, and the story, only stories that I well, I, the ones that I can share, the stories that I remember were <laughs> were based around a gringo coming in to, you know, we have an American in goal. If, if you won, you were the hero. If you lost, you didn't want to lose. Or if you made a mistake. Yeah. And, and the, amount of, yeah. the amount of things that were thrown at you in the game. I, those are the things I remember. But reflect yeah. a little bit for us and, and our listeners and our, our young goalkeepers about how you ended up there, what that experience was, and, and how it's uh, impacted you or hasn't impacted you going yeah. forward in your career. The one thing I would say, a couple things I would say is, one, it's had a major impact on my life. Both in, terms both, in terms, both in terms of soccer, but also even more so in terms of the way I see the world. I was a 21-year-old kid when I went there, and I came back to the States at 23. And in that two-year window off and on, the blinders, which were here, leaving America as a college athlete, were removed. And I saw what the rest of the world was really like, or at least parts of the world were really like. So it was one of the best experiences of my life because it taught me so much and it gave me so much confidence in being able to step outside of myself and do some things that are different. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that it has made me a huge, um, maybe advocate for being um, your own lucky charm, making your own luck. Because that opportunity to play in Peru came through a series of things that happened. And I'll explain them right now. The first one of those things was that I was literally reading through a Soccer America magazine and saw that Tony Schumacher was coming to the U.S. to coach and to do a week-long camp. Tony Schumacher was, which is, Tony was his nickname. Harold was his real name, was the goalkeeper we all know from the West German national team. Mm -hmm. That today, and most kids go, what, West Germany, what? They don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Schumacher was, was the man, and we all know that, back in the day. I made my own luck by reaching out to his representatives and by the people bringing him to the U.S., and I was one of three American goalkeepers that was invited to work with him, probably all of which you know. Myself, Daryl Shore, who coached in the league for years, and Jeff Duback. We were the three American goalkeepers that were invited to work with him. I'm sure they all went through the same, you know, uh, mechanism to try to get in there and make their own luck. But it is a part of the story that I think it's important for people to understand because had I not made those calls, had I not written those letters, had I not tried to reach out to those people, I would have never been in that camp with Schumacher where people from the Peruvian Federation and from all over the world, to be fair, showed up to watch and to listen. And at the end of that week, working with Tony, 
people from the Peruvian Federation approached me and asked if I would want to go there and set up a goalkeeping school or goalkeeping camp in Peru. I was only a junior in college at the time. <laughs> I took that idea, I spoke to my college advisor about it, and I made my internship for my degree, which was exercise physiology with a minor in business. I made that internship available to me in Peru. So I went, I worked with their federation. I created their goalkeeping curriculum for their federation, coached coaches, coached goalkeepers all over the country. But while I was there doing that for that four months, I started training with professional teams. I started asking around if there were teams that wanted someone on trial. And I think initially it was just kind of a novelty and, and something for people to look at and to say, oh, look, they got a gringo training with them. <laughs> Eventually I ended up signing and playing there and then playing for the same coach, two different clubs for two years and absolutely loving the experience. Absolutely loving the experience because food was different, language was different. I can now speak Spanish, which saves me in the locker room. Mm. Um, culture was different. The way you deal with people is different. Everything about the lifestyle was different. And I had to adapt to that because I was the outsider. And that made me a more adaptable person. So that's kind of how it happened. The stories that I've relayed to you and some of those fun things that have happened were just part of the journey along the way. Mm -hmm. It was at that time in Peru, it was um, the terrorism there through the shining path. And I forget what they're called in Spanish was terrible. So there were checkpoints all over the country when you traveled, airports, stops on the road if you were traveling by bus. There was more than one situation. That's why Georgie was probably giggling about it before because he's heard those situations where I've had to pull paperwork out of my bag to show military guys who are standing on our bus with a gun pointed up against my head asking for papeles. Donde está tu papeles? Where's your papers? So I'd give him my papers. It also caused me to grow a very thick goatee <laughs> hair down to the middle of my back. So I wouldn't, I mean, when you guys knew me back then, it was, it was a whole different story. <laughs> I didn't want to look American when I went back there for the second season. <laughs> um, and so those experiences, having grown up, for, for lack of a better word, spoiled, um, well-to-do, well-off, well-educated in the United States, and then going somewhere else where their players were literally fighting for their lives to keep food on the table was one of the best experiences of my life from soccer and just from a life perspective. And, and that was the one thing that I do remember, John, you, you talked about that, the, the last piece that you mentioned about, you know, those, those players are fighting for their lives and to put food on the table. And you had to prove yourself in, in more ways than one to prove yourself worthy of taking one of those spots that, that may have been, you know, occupied by a, a Peruvian who, who needed that yeah. money, income, et cetera. Yeah. And you don't, you don't see it right away, but you learn it over time and you mm -hmm. understand, Hey, don't take this personally. This isn't about you, John Pascarella. This is about you taking food off of their table because they know you've come here with a college education. They know when you go back, you'll probably have a job and they may not. So the tension at times was, was, What's the word? Palatable? Yeah. Palatable. Palatable. Yeah. It was, yeah. Well, the other thing is that, and again, I just want to, that's one of the beauties of soccer. Again, we've all had such experiences with different people, <laughs> different cultures that has really been, uh, you know, I'm speaking for myself here, but just been really just, I don't know, life enhancing. It just made life good because I could see so many different kinds of uh, attitudes, people, cultures, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's been, it was very good with that. Um, well, good, John, we've had you for over an hour, so we can appreciate your time. We don't want to take up too much of it. Um, but no, all the stories have been great. I think it was very good. You know, this has been a really good session in terms of uh, perhaps on the process of philosophy of coaching uh, that you share with everybody. So again, I just want to say thanks. Yeah, of course. I, I hope it was worthwhile. I, I know for me it was just to be able to see you guys and chat again and to bring up some of the old stories and talk about those things. But hopefully for your listeners, there was something that, that maybe caught their eye or caught their ear and, and they can use. 
I, I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. I know I don't. In fact, sometimes I, I call you guys or Billy, you'll get an email every once in a while asking, <laughs> Georgia, you'll get me picking your brain about what the hell is going on in Hartford, <laughs> those kind of things. So um, it's been great to see you guys again. It's great to see that you're doing well. And, and I really enjoyed the time. It was, it was fun and it, it gave me an hour to think about the game, but not to necessarily think about my current situation 24 <laughs> seven anyway. So nice to get away from that a little bit. Yeah, as always, it was very entertaining. Thanks, John. We hope you enjoyed that episode at the Goalkeeper Roundtable. If you'd like to reach out with suggestions, comments, or questions, all of our email addresses are available in the show description. If you like the show, We'd love for you to subscribe to it, but also share it in social media platforms or with any other goalkeeper or coach who may find value in it. We hope you turn in to the next Goalkeeper Roundtable.